Hey, good morning. So we are in um, part five, part five of Battle Ready. Um, here's what I need you to do right now. So you've got a Bible or you have an app, right? You've got a Bible or an app that allows you to read the Bible. So on your, on your app or in your Bible, I need you to find Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. This is super important. Everybody say super. This is super important. So we're, we're giving you Bibles. We're making sure that you find it. And if you still can't find it, it will be up on the screens. I'm pretty sure be, Hebrews 4.12 will be on the screens. We'll read it in just a second. Now, as you find Hebrews 4.12, um, that's an easier one because that's in the New Testament. I need you also um, over the next few minutes to find uh, a book in the Old Testament called Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. We'll be there. We're not going to touch on that until the very end probably of the message, but it might take you the whole message to find Ezekiel, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Nobody ever goes looking for Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 36 and 37, but for right now, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Um, the, over the last few weeks, we know this. We've been made aware, right? We've been made aware of our king. We've been made aware of our enemy. That's the loser that we talked about for one week. And last week, Phil did an amazing job. Or as I was told in my community group, it was a Phil-tastic message. That went over so much better when Richard said it in community group. Um, about how we, we, can't, we can't just be aware of all that, but we have to engage in the battle. We have to engage in the battle. And so this morning, um, we are turning a little bit of a corner, and I'm so glad. I've been waiting so long to get to this point where we start to talk about weapons. I just got every dude's attention in the room, right? Weapons that God has given us in the fight. And so this morning, we're going to start with um, the Word of God. Okay, the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12. Um, we'll read that in just a little bit. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God, this is the first weapon that He gives us to use in the battle. And what he does is he, the word of God equips us, raises up an army to use the word of God in the battle. Let me say that again. The word of God raises up an army that uses the word of God in the battle. So I'm going to phrase it even simpler. It's your big idea. If you've got a note sheet, you want to write this down where it says big idea. This is my um, willingness to admit that a lot of what I say you may not remember yet. We hope you go home. We hope that you study the growth guides. We hope that you re-watch re and listen to the podcast. We hope that you just meditate on what God's going to say through me this morning for sure. But if you don't and all you get is this one phrase, you're going to be good to go. And here it is. Are you ready? The word of God activates the army of God. The Word of God activates the army of God. Now I want to take a minute and read to you Hebrews 4.12. And then I'm going to show you how the Word of God activates the army of God. There's three very specific qualities that we're going to find in Hebrews 4.12 that allows the Word of God to activate the army of God. Hebrews 4.12. I told you to find it and I should have been finding it while you were finding it. That would have been super, super smart. Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and active. It is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Here's the first quality of the Word of God. They're all right here. The Word of God is alive. The Word of God is alive. Now I know that's a newsflash for many of you who all you knew growing up was that the Word of God was this big dusty book that sat on the coffee table only when visitors came, right? Your mom and dad would whip that thing out and put it on the coffee table, blow off the dust, turn through some pages, right? We think of it as a boring, outdated book, that, but Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is alive. It means that it has the quality of life. It means that it, it brings life to you. It means that it brings life through you. It, it means that it carries life and that everything that the Word of God touches lives. That's what it means. The Word of God is alive. Now you can take my word for it. I hope that you do. I really hope you take the word of God for it. Hebrews 4.12 said that the word of God is alive. Sometimes it helps when we can hear the testimony and story of somebody else that we know was dead and is now alive. And this morning that's what we're going to do. 
I'm going to sit down. And somebody that you know, some of you know this man more than others, but many of you know this man. And here's what you know because you've been watching. He has been brought from death to life by the word of God. Now let me tell you what he hasn't been brought from. Imperfect to perfect yet. Right? But he's been brought from death to life. And not because I'm a good preacher. Can I get an amen? You were nervous if you should say it, but I gave you permission, right? But because God's word is alive. For the word of God is living. It brings and carries life to us. Um, I want you guys to give it up for Mr. Jerry Caudill, who's coming to share his testimony. Amen. That's a pretty pretty tough introduction to follow but I'm going to turn it over to God here in just a second and he's going to he's going to walk me right through this so if there is anybody in here who shares my story who parallels what I've done and can see that in themselves know that there is life you can die on this earth and still walk around in this body but there is life I'd like to open with prayer please dear father God I come to you humbled this morning. I come to you to speak to your people and what the love story you've shared with me and how it just grows bigger and bigger every day. Lord, give me the words that's going to glorify you and will express your word to these people. Lord, I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Jeremiah 29, 12, 14. Then you will call upon me Come and pray to me, I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found, declares the Lord. I will restore. Isaiah 43.1 Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 6.8 And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So here I am. He sent me. You got to be careful what you ask for because he will send you. And these verses go hand in hand with my testimony. And I'm going to give you a story of God's patience, love, mercy, all for me. It was free. This is the greatest adventure, mystery, action-packed love story I will ever know as a man on the face of this earth. But it gets better when I die in this body. Now, let me tell you how I fell in love with God, my Father. And by the way, I do have to read this because if I get up here and just get to talking, I'm going to go way over Paul's time. I've done been timed on this like 42 times this week. And if I just talk, I'm like a third of the way through it at 30 minutes. So just bear with me. And I'm sure maybe Pastor Paul let me speak again as, as we dive into something else that really affects me. I was saved and baptized in 1979 at age 13. So, yeah, I'm 50 years old. I will never forget coming up from being dunked. I was on fire for Jesus, but I was wet as a dog. I lived two blocks from the church, so I was there every time the doors were open. And that same year during the summer, I got the chance to go to Fort Casual down to the youth retreat at the Baptist Center. I loved being there. I was actually starting to learn about Jesus. But I also noticed all these church-going girls that were walking around down there. So looking back at it now... Jesus was starting to fade at that point because the world was trying to grab a hold of me. It was trying to take my attention away from what I had just been through. My young heart had nobody to feed me the word. You know, the, it, and nothing against the pastors or nothing like that. It's just, you know, some people do kind of get dropped behind sometimes. And, you know, as me having my military background as a civilian with them, you know, the ranger were, rangers are real big in special forces. So their big motto is no man gets left behind. None. And that's what I'm seeing now is that we shouldn't leave nobody behind because of our own, our own fast-paced lives. My family was very hit and miss about going to church. We were kind of like holiday Christians. My parents were divorced when I was six, so I was behind the eight ball right there. And on Christmas Day of 1983, my dad died at home from a blood clot that had developed from a broken leg that he had gotten from a logging accident. Just a freak thing that happened, you know. It's just... 
One minute he's there with a broke leg fixing the hill up, and next minute he's dead on Christmas Day. He was 38. I was 17. I was a senior in high school. And my dad was a real outdoorsman. He taught me about hunting and fishing, how to run chainsaws, how to work with my hands, but not so much about how to be a godly man. I didn't have that, that, that godly fathering father experience. But at 17, I, I experienced my first true hate. I hated God because he took my daddy. And I was mad at God. I was mad at him for a long time. My question was, if he loved me so much that I had been taught when I got saved and baptized, how, how could you do something like that? You know, how, how, how could you be a loving God and take my dad away from me? 17 years old, that's when I needed my dad the most. But he took him, and I was mad. And I would ask him why, and I never felt like I got an answer, so I just quit asking. I set out to prove I did not need God. Jerry Caudill did not need God. I could fix it all myself. But I also remember it being at that age, standing in front of my dad's gun cabinet, because he was a hunter, and he had guns like you wouldn't believe. And I stood there, and I looked in the guns, and I thought, there's the answer to your problem. Just end it now. Be done with it. Don't even try to do this thing called life. But I was a coward. But now I see why I was a coward. It wasn't I was a coward. It was part of a plan to bring me to where I'm at right now. I don't have all the answers, and I don't pretend to, but I got the answers that gives me peace, and that's all that matters right now. But I spent the next three years after my dad's death trying to figure out where I fit in at. Nothing seemed to really work. And I met a girl, and we kind of rushed into getting married because the pain, the initial pain had eased because she kind of took a little bit of that away from me. By 88, I'd gotten a job at the prison, so now I had a badge, I had power, and I had authority. I was a man, right? <laughs> no, I was a father's thing from it. Dealing with those conditions in my mindset only made me do one thing. Make me, it made me hate the world, and it made me build bigger walls around my heart to keep people away from me. So now, by the time 1993 had got here, my marriage had failed, and I'd hated my job. I hated the world. I hated myself. And the worst thing, I hated God. And I was still mad at him. I was still carrying that resentment, and I refused to talk to him. I just wish he'd leave me alone and go on to find somebody else that really needed him. But all the years, he would confront me, and I would run from him. Later in 93, I met Kim, my wife, now. I'd gotten a new job. Life was going to be great now. Kim made me feel new. She made me, she understood me. She got me. So I pursued her, and I won her heart. Now it was time to work hard and rebuild my life. For years, our marriage was just a getting by marriage. I had no idea how to be a leader in my home. I was a failure from the beginning with it. So instead of me finding God, I found powerlifting. And that's how, I, that's how I removed my rage with the weights. Yeah, my body got bigger and I got stronger. But I was still just as empty as I was before I started doing this because I had no glory to do it. In 2002, I stumbled across a part-time job with U.S. Army Special Forces. Now, I was a civilian, get it straight, I was never a long-tab Green Beret, I've never been in the military, but for some reason, as a civilian, I was, I was lined up with these guys, and after a few years of working with them as a, as a volunteer, they offered me a, a paying job with them, because I had a knack for understanding what they were doing. For, for those that don't know what they do, they, uh, they go into a denied territory, a small group of guys, a 12-man team, they build rapport with the indigenous people that their mission statement calls for. They train in a system and become a force multiplier. And they, they work in covert military operations and tactics. All right, now I'm with these bad gunslingers now, so I really have something to prove. But the only thing that I really got out of it was I had become desensitized to mankind. I just hated the world that much more. Something bad would happen in the world and I would just basically be like, Oh, well, that's just the way people act. Instead of it tearing my heart out, it just made it that much harder. My motto was, kill them all, let God sort them out. He's the judge. We just give him something to do. But during all this time, me and Kim started spending more time apart. She was tending to the house and looking after the girls, and I was on my own quest to become a man. And this quest eventually took me to the pits of hell on earth. And I'm not a bit of proud of what I'm fixing to tell you, 
but it is part of what I am or what I was. I cheated on Kim with a woman who offered me worldly validation as a man. But as I engaged in this affair, the guilt was overwhelming. Didn't know why. It just was. So I wanted to end it. After a few months, the fun had worn off, and I wanted out. So I tried to correct my cowardness and quietly go back to my home. And at first, it happened quietly. But Kim did find out. And I got the dreaded phone call to come home and explain what I had done. Driving home that day from work, the only thing I could try to do in that truck, I didn't ask God for help. I was trying to figure out a lie to cover it up with. You know, it's Special Forces SOP. Always have that cover story. Don't let them catch you. But I had been caught. When I walked through that door, she had more emotion than I had ever dealt with another human in my life. Mad, hurt, upset, that was an understatement. She was ballistic. And she had no fear of me. And that's something I always had tried to set up with people, put an intimidation factor there so they wouldn't bother me with anything. Or I would be able to tell them what to do and I would get my way with it. But short story, long story short, she asked me. I admitted it. She asked me questions. I answered. And then we began the process of her forgiving me. I thought, boy, Jerry, that was close. You know, you got to get your act together, get your butt in church, try harder, give more, be nicer. Same old blah, 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 the, the mainstream message in church right now for a man. Give more, be quiet, sin less, that kind of stuff. That's not what a warrior does. A warrior makes a noise. He roars for his dominion, his king's dominion. I left the Army two years ago, had a little tiff with our new team sergeant we got I didn't like the way he was running it didn't think he was running it the way I, I, I had a lot more time in than he did but anyhow I left but thinking back at it now God had a plan for me he was fixing to put me on my face and he was going to use what training I have within special forces for his kingdom alright and I had, I had learned how to operate against larger hostile forces in a denied area and win at all cost. Now he is going to show me how to channel it for his kingdom through the word. So God was actually starting to align the right people in my life at, during this time. For all of a sudden, I got concerned about my daughter's salvation. God, where'd that come from? The church we were at, they didn't teach that. Believe it or not, they didn't. There's churches out there that don't teach these kids about salvation and where it comes from and how important it is. So I brought that to Kim's attention. I told her, I said, you need to find a different church for them girls to go to. Now, not me. I didn't take leadership position this time. I was still, you know, I'm still giving out orders here. I'm working at the back. I'm at, I'm at the back. I'm not out in, on operations with this. I'm just telling her how to handle it. So Kim, she did. She found the gathering. And here we are. And I would randomly, randomly come at first. But then I got to know Pastor Paul, Nehemiah Parra, Todd Dennis, David Lee, these men really started standing out to me. I couldn't tell you why. And about the same time, I got to know Pastor Bob at First Assembly. Now, you talk about godly men to start counseling me. My team was stacked. These men were giving me a directional adjustment with God's word, and I never seen it coming. God was fixing to adjust fire on me and sink the ship that I had floated around on and then provide me with a much-needed rescue. And during all this time, hey, if y'all know her, y'all understand where I'm coming from with this. I met Beth Poplin. I went to her for therapy with my lifting. And at first I thought this lady is off her ever-loving rocker. <laughs> that she is the real cat, crazy cat lady for Jesus. And Paul even said this last week, a real Jesus freak. I've, I had met one. I knew what, exactly what he was talking about. But she was keeping me healthy and injury-free, so I kept going back. But as I started going back more and more to her, our friendship grew. And she opened up to me about God, the Bible, and her love for Jesus. And I know that she probably seen a real hard soul here in the beginning, even though I was a nice guy. She was smart and authentic. And then she became my beautiful sister in Christ that would call me out when she seen me wrong. Or if I had the misinterpretation of something I had read. She's that kind of person. 
And I remember about the time the power force showed up up here when uh, Jerome Keene came. They, they, Beth was all over me about, you got to go to the first assembly. You got to go. And I'm like, why do I care about going to that? I know what it's like to pick something heavy up. I don't need to go see these guys do that. And at the last minute, I changed my mind and I went. And there I met Paul Rogers, my Ananias. He was a power force in itself. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And just before he went home, after they had gotten done in Florida, I got to spend an hour or so one-on-one with him and hear his dirty testimony, what he told me as a man, not what he tells a mixed group of people. And it was a real eye-opening experience. But when that was over and said and done, I blurted out at him, can I pray for you? He said, sure, but I'm thinking, what am I going to pray? Why did I say that? I ain't never prayed for nobody, much less out loud. But anyhow, I stood there, the 210 pounds of me, and he's like 300 pounds, and you got two big guys in there, and we're holding hands, and I start praying for him, and the words are coming out. I don't even recognize myself. It's like I'm a third person watching all this stuff. But then when I was done with him, he asked if he could do the same for me. And he did it, and it was so full of life. It was beautiful, and it was hopeful. Hope is a plan. Where I used to say hope wasn't a plan. Hope is the plan. Here's where it gets tough. He got in his car to leave, and I got in my truck. I turned the key, and before I could even crank the truck, I started crying. Now, crying was not an easy thing for me to do because I had blocked that emotion a long time ago. But I was uncontrollably crying. And the only thing I remember screaming was, Lord God, why? Why me? Why do you torture me? But I'm so tired of running. Will you take me home and fix me? In an instant. Remember Phil doing that? In an instant. My Heavenly Father said, Jerry, I've waited 37 years to hear that. Come home and be welcomed as my beloved son. I love you, and we've got work to do. You're on a mission now. You have purpose. Awaken and claim your place in my kingdom. I'm coming back from the dead, people. My heart is coming back from the dead. So now I seek my Father's face through prayer, the Bible, godly counsel, and by godly men, and books that have been placed in my path. Jesus took my wounds one by one and fixed them and validated my heart as in a masculine heart for the kingdom, man. Now I have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to fear. I am one of God's beloved sons. You would think becoming a Christian or a born-again Christian or a awakened Christian, however you want to put it, or an oriented Christian from being disoriented, that, um, that it's all good now, that I won the lottery and all my vehicles are paid for, my house is paid for, I don't have to work no more, I'm not working seven days a week no more. Actually, that's the furthest thing from the truth because now as I step up in the leadership position in my home as the man of the house, spiritual leader, the devil is coming after me with everything he's got. He tried it at 3 o'clock this morning, but I'm standing here because I don't fear the devil because God is my king. I pray constantly and I thank him every day for the do-over he gave me, and he gave me a chance to see it. I love my father. I love my Jesus. So look at my love story. I live in a battlefield, but a love story leads and defines me. Be battle ready and advance our king's mighty kingdom. James 1.5, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. He will gladly tell you. I desire to be the man when I get up in the mornings, heaven, earth, and hell take notice of me. I'm Jerry Caldwell. I'm a child of God, a beloved son, a warrior, and a kingdom man. Thank you. Death to life, right? I said death to life, right?
Word of God is alive. The Word of God, the Word brings life to us. And why, why can Jerry not stay quiet? Because when the Word of God brings life to us, the Word of God then brings life through us, okay? You're in Ezekiel 36, 37. Just keep your finger there. When I, we get to reading that later, it'll, that'll make sense. Just remember for right now that the Word brings life to us and the Word brings life through us because the Word of God is alive. Now, Hebrews, the author goes on and says, not only is the Word living, but it is also active. The Word of God is active. Let me ask you a quick question. Somebody who is alive but not active, we have a term for those people. They are called, see if you can say this with me, they're called couch potatoes. People who are alive but not active are called couch potatoes. The Word of God is not a couch potato. The Word of God is alive and it is active. And the Greek word for active actually means effective. So the Word of God is not just powerful, like just dormant power, but it is power for doing something, for being effective in something. And here's two things that the Word of God is able to do. Two things that the Word of God is able to do because it is alive and because it is active. One, the Word of God accomplishes God's purpose. If you're taking notes, write down, accomplishes God's purpose. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12. God said that he is watching over his word to see that it does what it's supposed to do. Don't raise your hands, but if you are an investor, if you play in the stocks, if you have a retirement account, if you are an active investor, then here's what that means. It means that you are watching your funds, you're getting statements, and every now and then you call your accountant and you say things like this, uh, time out, excuse me, this fund is underperforming, and I have found another fund, and that you're recommend- I'm asking that you would take some of my money in this underperforming fund, and you would move it to this fund that promises me 328,000% return in three months. There's no fund like that, I'm just having fun, right? Because you are an active investor. You are watching over your retirement to make sure that it performs. And if it does not perform, then you make changes. This word, this Greek word for active, that's what it's talking about. Jeremiah 1.12 says that God is watching over his word, his investment, to see that it performs. Isaiah. These are just verses to jot down. Isaiah chapter 55 um, it's, I've got 11 up there, but 10 through 13, um, Isaiah 55, 11 says that God watches over his word, that it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. But here's how the picture plays out in verses 10 and 11. I love this. It says, as rain and snow fall from heaven, snow would be nice, right? I mean, like it feels like summer in here today, right? It's crazy. But as rain and snow fall from heaven... And water the ground and water the seed so that a harvest can be taken out of the ground. Paraphrasing, but that's what it says. So shall my word not return to me without accomplishing what I sent it to do. Can you just imagine this? Just picture this. Rain coming down from heaven and getting almost to the ground and just you turning and going back up. Wouldn't that be crazy? God's word doesn't do that either. God sends his word, his active, effective word to accomplish his purpose. So because God's word is active, it's able to accomplish God's purpose. Here's the second thing that it's able to do. How does it accomplish God's purpose? By activating God's people. What we're going to see in Ezekiel is this. Have you ever noticed that God could just, we're into snapping fingers. Phil did it last week. God could just do this and whatever he wants could happen. I mean, do we agree on that? He could do that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if you had that power? Walk into your house, dirty dishes everywhere, laundry piled up, not one, not two, not three, yay, even the whole house. And you could just go, and the house is clean, right? Wouldn't that be great? God, I don't want to jack with your theology, but God really could do stuff like that. He really could just 
snap his fingers. We're going to read in Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones in just a little bit. And what I want you to see is that God could have said to Ezekiel, hey, Ezekiel, I got an idea. Just stand back and watch this. And he could have snapped his fingers and those dead bones could have come together and then it could have been an army of, of, li- of living people. God could have done all that. But instead, he activated Ezekiel to step into the valley of dry bones and participate in the process. Whether you like it or not, whether you think I'm any good at it or not, this morning as the pastor of the gathering, I am activating the army of God. Jerry this morning was a participate a participant in activating the army of God. God could snap his fingers and suddenly you're just this on fire army of God, but for whatever reason, God chooses to use people as part of the process. So this morning, as your pastor, God is speaking through me, his word, his word, not my word, his word to activate the army of God. Just down the street, Brian Wright, God is using him to activate Boomerang. A little bit down this road and then going towards Concord 73, God is using Larry Wilkins this morning at Growing Family Church to activate. In the theater on the other side of town, God is using Kevin Simmons to activate Vortex. Just over here on the other side of Albemarle High School, he's using Brad Lynch to activate the army at North Albemarle Baptist. You've already heard Jerry mention Pastor Bob Groover. He's using him this morning at First Assembly to activate the army at First Assembly. He's using people to activate an army. He speaks his word. He brings it to us and then through us to activate the army. The word of God activates the army of God. And because the Word of God is active, because it's effective, it's able to activate us to then help accomplish God's purpose. Here's the third thing that it does. The author of Hebrews says, for the Word of God is living and active. And then he starts describing what it does. It's crazy. He says, it's able to penetrate the, to, the, to, to the joints and marrow, divide them. And it says in the next verse, it's able to lay us bare before God because the Word of God is not only alive, it's not only active, it's also accurate. The Word of God is accurate. How many of you would agree that accuracy is important? Um, Don't raise your hands on this because I don't want to embarrass you. But how many of you have ever, ever like in your house, you had an appointment, you had to be there at a certain time, and so you're watching the clock and you're super aware of that clock. And you were getting dressed and you have timed everything in your house based on the clock, right? And so like, you're like, I've got time for a second cup of coffee. Sweet. You push the button. Keurig does its thing. You're drinking. It kind of, I got time to breathe. I'm a little bit ahead. Drink that coffee. And then you get in the car. You crank the car up and look at the clock in the car and realize that your house clock was 10 minutes slow. Ever had that happen to you? And like you thought you were 10 minutes early and now you realize you're late. The panic that comes. Accuracy is really, really important. We talked a couple weeks ago that all Satan wants to do is distract you. If he can just distract you, just just a, a separation of degree or two. Over a whole life, you just miss the mark by so much because you're not accurate. The Word of God is accurate. So when, when, when I say this is accurate, when the... Author of Hebrews writes that it's able to divide even a soul and spirit. What I want you to see is that this is the work of a surgeon, not the work of a savage. And surgeons have things like scalpels, right? I've never been put under the knife. But if you have, um, you would probably agree. I don't think this is far-fetched. If you were going to be put under the knife in surgery, what you would not want to see as you're counting backwards from, is it 100 or 10? I don't even know. It doesn't matter because it's like count back from 100. You're like 100. Yeah, I know you're out like that. As you're counting backwards, what you would not want to see is the surgeon whip out a machete, right? That would be the the last image before the surgery begins, and he whips out a machete, and you're just like 100. No, crap, right? That's not good. What I want you to see is that the Word of God is accurate. It means a couple things. It means that it's precise. The Word of God is precise. 
In Ephesians 6, 17, Paul's wrapping up his, his instructions on the armor of God. And he says this, finally, brothers, put on the helmet of salvation and take up the sword of the Spirit. And that word sword is not sword, right? Not this big giant pirate sword or, you know, the things that you see in Braveheart. It's not that. The sword of the Spirit is much smaller, Probably even smaller than that. That's what the word is in the Greek. It's a dagger. Take, out, take up the sword of the Spirit. It's precise. It's, it's what you can use in hand-to-hand combat when you're face-to-face with the enemy. When you don't have time to, can you imagine if... We're not going to actually fight. But if we were fighting and we were like face to face and I was trying to get a big old sword out. I'm dead, right? But finally take up the sword of the spirit. It was a dagger that you could hide. It was, it was, it was easily within reach. You could pull it out in close quarters. Take care of business. This is the sword of the spirit. And then he defines it. He says, not only is it precise, and it is precise, and we want scalpels, not machetes, correct? We want surgeons, not savages. I'm sorry that sometimes people rip other people up with the Word of God, not what it was intended for. It's more intended to be surgery for us, right? Not only is it precise, but it's personal. Because the Word of God is accurate, it's personal. Now, here's where it's going to get a little bit crazy, okay? I want to make sure you follow me. I'm throwing some Greek at you, okay? And you got to, depending, depending on your background in church, you've heard this word before or you haven't, but stick with me, okay? Just get, bear with me. Just give me a few minutes to explain this, and then we'll wrap up. But this is the good part, okay? Listen, Ephesians six seventeen says, Finally, put on the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Dagger, right? Close quarters, hand-to-hand combat. Which is, he defines it, I'm so glad when the Bible defines terms, which is the Word of God. So if you're reading that at home with your coffee, you got your NIV out, and you're reading it, you're like, oh, okay, Sword of Spirit, Word of God, Bible, right? Is that what you think? Yeah, absolutely. But there's two Greek words for word. One is logos. That's the one that most of us are familiar with. And logos is like the the total Word of God, like Genesis to Revelation, it's it's. The total package, logos of God. But then in Ephesians six seventeen, when it says the sword of the Spirit, dagger, not sword, but dagger, take out the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He doesn't use the word logos. He uses the word rhema. Rhema is different than logos, and here's why. Because rhema is a spoken word. It's a spoken word. Now, I'm going to give you some examples in Scripture just so you kind of see this is in there. But before I do that, here's what I want you to think. Anybody ever watched Sesame Street growing up? Did you learn how to, did you learn how to, to talk and spell watching Sesame Street? Remember when they do that thing? They'd be like, S, pot, spot. Da-da, S, pot, spot, spot, S, pot. Right? Do you ever remember that? And like, they'd be like closer and closer together, like, you like, you learn how to read that way, right? They're like, let's do it again. T, op, top. T, op, top. And like, it get closer and closer and closer, and they're like puppets everywhere. And you learn how to read that way. So I want to do that with, with you right here, okay? Watch. Listen. Take out the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God, spoken word of God. So every time you see the word sword, it's the spoken word it's the spoken word the s word sword get it see how that worked yeah it's the spoken word the rhema is the spoken word take up the sword the spoken word the sword of the spirit which is the rhema of god which is the word of god it's a specific word of god so um, before I give you some examples of this in the, in the Bible, let me see if I can sum it up like this. The Logos of God becomes the rhema of God given to the soldier of God to be used in battle for God. That was good. I know you're impressed. Let me do it again. The Logos of God 
becomes the rhema of God given to the soldier of God to be used in battle for God. Rhema. Let me give you some verses. Just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Jesus, in Matthew 4.4, said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every rhema that proceeds from the mouth of God, the spoken word. John 6.63, Jesus said, The words that I speak, the rhema that I speak, are life to you. The word is alive. It brings life to us and through us. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the rhema of God, the word of God. The logos of God becomes the rhema of God given to the soldier of God to use in the battle for God. So, you ever been reading the Bible and like you're just, I'm not getting anything out of this. And all of a sudden you read a verse and it's like, oh man, that's good. You ever had that happen? This when you pull your journal out, you write it down. Man, that's a good, I've read that a million times. Wow, that's really good. If Paul lets me preach, I'm going to preach on that. That's so good. That's the Logos of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, becoming the rhema of God. And there's a reason for that. It's because you're in a situation, hand-to-hand combat, close quarters, where what you don't need to do is, in the name of Jesus, Satan, I command you to leave me alone because, and start quoting in Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. You don't have time for that. In hand-to-hand combat, sometimes what you need is a dagger of truth, just a word, a rhema that God's giving you. To attack him with, let me give you a couple of examples. When Wendy and I were on staff at First Assembly, and we knew that God was moving in our hearts to get us to leave that staff position and go out on the road, and we were like any of you would have been scared out of our minds. And I remember saying to God, if that's what you want me to do, that's cool and all, but you're going to have to give me like a verse, right? I'm not going on a motion. I'm not going on a dream. You're going to have to give me a verse. And we prayed and prayed and prayed for a verse, and they were driving home one day from work at First Assembly, just John 13, 4 popped in my head. And I was like, sweet, this is it. It's going to be the verse that says, Paul, leave First Assembly and go on the road. And I went home and ran into the house. And Wendy was like, what? And I said, I can't talk right now. I, gotta, I think I got it. I think I got it. And I opened up the Bible. And it, it says, and Jesus got up from the table, took up a basin, a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. That does not say anything about leaving Albemarle First Assembly. Nothing. What is up with that? I just kept reading it. And all of a sudden, that verse that I had read so many times before, the Logos of God, became the rhema of God for me. And I walked into the den. I said, Wendy, this is it. I read it to her and she went, huh? (laughs) I said, we're supposed to get up from the table where we're being fed and we're supposed to go serve the disciples of Christ. She was like, dang, that's good. I know. And I couldn't have thought of that. Rhema, word of God. When it was time to start this church, I wrestled with God and said, I don't want to start a church in Stanley County. There's like a thousand. Why do we need another church in Stanley County? And I was sitting in a church service. The preacher was preaching from Luke chapter 5 about how Jesus told Peter to go back out and put his nets down again. And then the preacher kept on preaching. I'm sure it was great. But I was lost at that point because I'm reading it. And all of a sudden, a story that I'm sure was being preached about something different in that service. And I had read it so many times before. All of a sudden, God said, Paul, dude, clue in. What did Jesus tell Peter to do? And I went, fish. He said, where? I said, I don't know, the pond? He says, no, no, no. The same pond where he had been fishing. And he said that there were fish that he did not even know about. And God said, you can plant a church in the same city because there are fish that you don't know about. Logos of God became the rhema of God. When Wendy and I were struggling through infertility, I know i got to wrap this up. When we were struggling through infertility, God took me to 2 Kings where the prophet said to a woman, sometime around this time next year you'll have a a son. And, And I'd read that so many times. But in that moment, I remember saying to God, I don't even, this was exactly what I said to God, just so you don't think I'm a name it, claim it kind of guy. I was like, God, I don't even know if it's legal for me to say that's my promise. But I think you're telling me that I'm going to have a son. And then I got home and found out that Wendy had a conversation with a friend of hers about that same scripture. And she was saying to God, I don't know if I can do this, but I think you're telling me I'm going to have a son. 
the Logos of God became the Rhema of God. And because he gave her the word and me the word, we had twins. <laughs> so, sometimes confirmation, not a good thing, right? <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't have three confirmations. We'd have triplets. It's like, stop. We're good, right? We believe it. Here's why all this matters. Because the word of God is accurate and God takes his logos. And listen, I'm not talking about him giving you weird words like the Lord gave me a rhema word that I'm supposed to go streaking around Stanley County. Uh, No, he did not because that contradicts the logos of God, right? So this is all based on the word of God, okay? So don't get any crazy ideas and come, don't go walk around going, I got a rhema, I got a rhema. Uh Uh-uh, no, no, and no, okay? If you have a rhema, it'll be based in the Logos. And if you don't, shut up. Okay? All right? There's no rhema about you getting a car because you gave God all your money. So don't even say that stuff. All right? Just don't go crazy with it. But that does not discount the fact that rhema words from God are real and biblical. I just showed you where they are. So here's how that works. I believe that some of you in the battle, how does this work for you in a battle? You're in a battle and you are being attacked And God starts to attack you like, man, you're never good enough. You're never this, you're never that. I mean, Jerry just shared all these attacks. And you know that you you struggle with our mind. We know this is where the enemy struggles. He gets us in our minds. The enemy has darts of death and they're always thoughts. But we have daggers of life and they're always verses. Always verses. And God's going to give you verses for your specific situation. And you take it and stick the devil with it. Right? That's what you do. And you can feel good about saying it, right? I'm sticking the devil with this. That's why God gave you that, okay? Now, he does it for us individually. I believe he also does it for us corporately. And here's how we're going to close out. Um, Can I get some volunteers? We need to pass something out. We've got some people coming right now. And maybe a few more that we'd be willing to help them do that as well. Because everybody's going to get what they're getting ready to hand out. Now, while they're handing that out, I asked you to find Ezekiel, didn't I? Ezekiel 36 and 37. I'm not going to preach a whole other message on two chapters, so you're good, okay? Just don't freak out. But I do want to close this morning out sharing with you a very specific, what I believe a very specific rhema word of God. Sure, I'll take one. Thanks. All right, so at the end of last year, towards the end of last year, I don't know if you know this or not, but we come to church every, it's really small, isn't it? Everybody's going to be like, okay, just by the way, when you get these things, there's a map on it, and you can't read it, okay? But there's a website where you can read it, and I can print you a bigger one if you need it. Anyway, um, at the end of last year, we come, we come to church every Sunday morning at 730, and we pray. Um, it's not a lot, but man, is it powerful. And we worship, we pray, we just kind of invite the Holy Spirit to come in this place and just, man, blow you up. It's basically what we ask Him to do, just wreck people for you, Jesus. And so last year, the end of last year, as I was praying, um, I don't get lots of stuff in my head, but I got this, this word in my head. It was like I couldn't get it out. I couldn't stop thinking about this word. And the word was cultivate. And I just knew God was saying, man, Paul, cultivate, that's the word, that's what I'm telling you for the gathering in 2017. It is time to cultivate. And, you know, I can't grow anything. Like, if you gave me, I'm surprised I don't kill living things, but if, I mean, people. But if you gave me a plant, come back in a week, it's dead. I'm just telling you right now, I can't cultivate nothing. So I don't even know what the word means. So I start studying cultivate. I, I do what you should do. I go to smarter people and ask them, like, what's cultivate about? And here's what I learned. Agriculturally speaking, Cultivating is preparing the soil, not just for any harvest. Look it up. You'll see it's true. But cultivating means preparing the soil for a large harvest. Cultivate. So remember when it snowed? Well, it didn't really. Remember that time that they called for 14 inches and it, like, whatever it did, it got spit and that was about all we got, right? But it was enough for us to have to cancel church because the roads were kind of weird and icy and all kind of stuff, black ice. So we didn't have church that week and we didn't have growth guides. And so um, some community groups met and some didn't, but the, the PAR community group met. And Renee sent me a text and she's like, tonight at community group we're talking about cultivate. And you know, I was like, sweet, that's really cool, right? You know, 
but then she came to the leadership team, the next leadership team meeting, and she said, before we left, she said, I've got to read this to you guys. And I was like, when people say that, you have to let them read, right? You can't say no. So she's, she pulls out Ezekiel chapter 36. Are you there? Ezekiel chapter 36. And she said, Paul, I did a word study in the Bible on cultivate. And this is, there's a lot of verses, a lot of passages, but this is the passage that really caught my attention. I think you might have said it might have been the last one you shared at your community group. Um, and she said, I just need to read it to you because I really feel like this is, this is a, a word that God's speaking to our church. Now, when people say that, I lean in to listen, but cautiously, right? <laughs> God wants me to speak a word to your church. You should all drive Hondas. Oh, okay, whatever. I like Hondas, but let's go with it. Ezekiel 36, here it is, 33 to the end of the chapter. And this is what it says. Now, as I read this, picture Albemarle, okay? We're in the process of rebuilding this Kimbrell's furniture store. In the middle of a city where, have you noticed a lot of empty buildings? Yeah. Like, okay, you got it? So picture Albemarle as I read this. Oh, my goodness, this makes me so excited. It was so good. I hope it's good for them. But if nothing else, me, you, and Wendy are all over it, right? This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and your ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that has laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations, cities, counties around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, rebuilt what was destroyed, and I have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, spoken, and I will do it. This is when the sovereign Lord says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed time, feast. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people and then they will know that I am the Lord. Listen, I have no doubt that that Don't freak out when I say this, right? Because I'm with you. It's a rainbow word of God to our church. No doubt. No doubt. Everybody say no. No No doubt. Put yourself in Ezekiel's position. Ezekiel's called to to prophesy the word of God to a dead nation. Israel was dead. This was the prophecy about Israel. And God says, hey, dude, you've been killing it. I know, I know it's about to kill you, but I'm going to bring this thing back to life. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. And the very next chapter, what does God do? He takes them to a valley of dry bones. Can you imagine being Ezekiel? You hear this amazing word. Sweet, it's going to be awesome. You want me to work with this? And what did God tell Ezekiel to do? He said, prophesy to the bones. Now, we're using all kinds of weird words, rhema, prophecy. Don't let these words freak you out. You know what prophecy is? Prophecy is just taking the word of God and saying it. That's it. Take the word of God, say it. You've been prophesying over your kids since they were born, before they were born. You said things like, God's got a plan for your life. You're just prophesying scripture. That's all you're doing. So people do stuff that's weird. I get it, but don't let that freak you out. He says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. And, and so he did, and they rattled and came together. And he said, now prophesy to the breath. And he did, and it entered them. Listen, what I want you to get from today is this. We partner, with the pro- we partner with the promise of God by prophesying to the problem. We partner with the promise by prophesying to the problem. And God could have said to Ezekiel, I got this again. Step back and check it out. I'll do it. But he said, no, no, you step into the battle. You prophesy to the bones. You prophesy to the breath. You do it. And then I will do such a work that the nations around me will not say Ezekiel was the man. They'll say, your God is God. Okay? So, here's what that means for us. And I I got, God, man, this is so long. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm trying not to be long. I'm so sorry. I never do this, okay? Until next service. But you'll be out of here eating by then, right? So what you hold in your hand, listen, I've never done building stuff. A full disclosure, okay? I don't want to make that have, give you less confidence in me. I don't know how to build a building. I don't know any of that stuff. But I know, I know the rainbow word of God for our church. No doubt, okay? So here's what I can do. Here's what I'm going to do. 
We're going to do this thing called 200K in 40 days. All right? I'm going to be very clear. We need $200,000 in 40 days. That's 200K. Um, raise your hand if you have it. Sweet. I'm just looking. I was looking. We're going to talk after church. My, my guess is, I mean, none of us do, right? And so for me, um, it's just like, that's for me stepping into a valley of dry bones going, oh, but the promise sounded so good. But we partner with the prompt. I'm sorry, we, we, yeah, we partner with the prof, prom, promise huh, by prophesying to the problem. So what I'm going to do, I'm not calling you to do it. I'm telling you that I'm doing it. Is Tuesday's Valentine's Day, and I'm going to start on Tuesday. The map you hold in your hand, I'm running that every day for 40 days. It's 5K. If you're doing the math, that's 200K. That's 124 miles. And all I'm going to do is run and walk that map every day for 40 days, and I'm going to pray the promise of God over our city. Now, that map is the perimeter of the historic district of Albemarle, where our building is now and where the building we're moving into will, is as well. If you, you want to come down to Albemarle one day and walk it and run it, sweet. You got the map right there. You know what to pray on the days that you're praying. Um, am, am I believing God to provide $200,000? Absolutely. But that is not nearly as important to me as us taking 200K of prayer over our city. Because I'm telling you right now, if we pray life back into our city, God's going to take care of money. Money ain't nothing to God. But getting men's hearts to partner with his promise by prophesying to the problem, yes, that's what he's after. March the 25th is the 40th day. It's a Saturday. And on that day, we'll give you many more details. Um, you can get all the details at what'snext.vision as it gets closer. We're all going to come together. If you want to be a part of it, we'll all meet on that Saturday. We'll walk it together. And we'll pray for our city that day. March the 26th is a Sunday. It's actually day 41, but God's cool with it. On March the 26th, we're believing God. We are believing God that by March the 26th, he will have raised $200,000. That will, and by that time, the bank will have come back with an appraisal on the plans, and we'll be ready to go to them about financing, and we'll take that money, and we'll go secure what we need to go finish that building. And then we're going to be in that building in September, and on September the 10th, we're going to kick off a four-night revival in that building. Already have the speakers lined up. All we need is a place. God can take care of it. But it all starts now. I don't want to move into a building and have a building in a dead city. I want to bring life to a city. And so that's what this is about. We're asking you to pray. We're asking you to ask God, what part can I play? If you want to give during those 40 days, you can do it. you got the offering envelopes right there. They say, what's next? You can just give to that what's next category. You can text next with how much you want to give. You can give online. All of it says what's next, you can't miss it. If you want to wait and give on the 26th of March, that's cool as well. I can tell you right now, standing here today, as of last night, 10% already come in. That's amazing, okay? That's amazing. So what I'm believing is, and I don't have to wrap it up, but what I'm believing is that as God does this thing through us, I want you to get that through us, because the only person here with that kind of money is Jan, which means a lot of people are going to be talking to Jan after church today, right? Hey, Jan, I don't think we've, we've met yet. <laughs> you know? Because all of us can look around the room and go, where's that going to come from? It's going to come from God, but you need to hear me say this clearly. It's going to come from God through you, through your checkbook through people that you know that hear about what God's doing and ask you how they can be a part of it, that's how it's going to come. It's going to come through me. And for us to say, God, do an amazing thing without stepping into the battle is immature and selfish. And God is giving us the opportunity to step into a valley of dry bones and prophesy to the problem. And that's how we partner with his promise. And I am so excited. So the word of God is activating the army of God. And I want to pray over you. And now I've got to let you get out of here. Man, y'all have stayed way too long. You've got to leave. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for um, just what we have seen and experienced today. The truth of your word. The way that your word is living. The way that it's active. The way that it's accurate. I thank you for the way that over the next 40 days, you are going to speak to your people. Rhema words. That we're going to have devotional time with you when the Bible on the page just literally leaps off the page 
God, those of us that are facing um, situations at work, situations in our families, situations with relatives beyond this city, situations, God, where we need hope, where we need direction, where we need from you that rhema word, you're going to give it. And I thank you for what we read just in John 6, 63, that the rhema word you speak, Jesus, to us is life. And so we speak that life over our church and over our city, over the places around us that seem to be dead and beyond repair. The promise of God is that the glorious ruins are going to come to life. And we thank you. We give you freedom, God, to activate us with your word, just like you did with Jerry. Thank you, God, for his testimony, for the reality that you are a God who brings dead things back to life. And for that, God, we give you praise. In your name, Jesus, amen.